Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Green Room. We're going to talk about Coinbase and the tapioca boba shortage that's going on around the world, um, in case you're wondering what's going on. No, just kidding. Uh, welcome to Disrupt TV. And we're just some quick reverse introductions before we start. You're in The Green Room. And uh, for those watching live, definitely follow us. Um, real quick, working our way backwards, Cecilia, where are you calling in from today? What are you going to be talking about? Hey, I'm Cody from San Jose in California. Uh, we're going to go um, talk about all things IoT. And the food very, very cool. Thank you so much. Sneha, where are you calling in from? Unless it's an undisclosed location, which is fine. And what are you talking about today? <laughs> yeah, calling in from San Francisco. We're going to talk cybersecurity, um, AI, and automated hacking. Automated hacking. Oh, my God. Very, very cool. And Michael, where are you calling in from today? And what are we going to talk about? Uh, Miami Beach, Bitcoin. Bitcoin. We never heard about that. Oh, we'll have to talk more. <laughs> All right. So cool. I'll do the honors and we will start the show and we'll start moving people off. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and now welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and Breaking News. His new book comes out in a few months, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. He's a regular television business uh, technology contributor. I often see him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, and Cheddar. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker. And in my humble opinion, one of the top features to follow on Twitter at RWANG Zero. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Thanks a lot. I'm with my wonderful co-host, Vala Afshar. As he mentioned, he's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. And he's executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and also posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But it's not about me. We've got a world legend here. Uh, who do we have next on our show and who's going to kick it off today? I like that. I totally agree. Our first guest is M Michael Saylor, chairman and CEO of MicroStrategy, a publicly traded business intelligence firm he founded at age 24 in 1989. Michael was a creator and founder of Alarm.com, one of the first uh, home automation security companies, and Angel.com, which he sold to Genesis for $110 million in 2013, one of the first cloud-based interactive voice response service providers. He's a named inventor on more than 40 patents, Credited as the inventor of rational anal analytics, he led MicroStrategy into fields of web analytics, uh, distributed analytics, mobile analytics, cloud computing, mobile identity, and IoT. Michael is the author of the book, The Mobile Wave, How Mobile Intelligence Will Change Everything, which he published in 2012. And that time, at that time, the book anticipated the impact of mobile, cloud, social, uh, in terms of uh, uh, politics and economic development, along with the rise of Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Michael founded and serves as a trustee of Sailor Academy, a nonprofit organization that has provided free education to 800,000 plus students. He's an advocate for Bitcoin standards. And we're going to talk a lot about Bitcoin in the next 20 minutes. He's a brilliant follow on Twitter, must follow on Twitter at Michael underscore Sailor, S-A-Y-L-O-R. And I say brilliant. I have witnessed Michael impacting new business development thesis of Elon Musk, uh, which led to about a 1.5 billion uh, purchase of Bitcoin, and it was all on Twitter, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Welcome, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
You know, Michael, hey, we're really excited to have you here. And, you know, we're going to talk about a range of subjects from, you know, what's happened in the pandemic to Bitcoin to what's going on. Um, but let me start with this one, which is really about, you know, your role. I mean, you've been a technology investor um, in Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Google. You've been doing other things in the past decade. You've been watching these trends. What are you seeing in the market that's different this time around? Because something is really different post pandemic. I think in the last 12 months, we saw an acceleration of digital transformation in uh, two obvious areas. One is the digital transformation of sales, marketing, and services via zooming around and dematerialization of meetings. And we basically converted $50 million worth of sales and marketing effort into streaming video and Zoom meetings. And so... So the velocity and, uh, and the efficiency with which companies market, sell, service their products is dramatically increased. And the second digital transformation is the digital transformation of assets. Um, and that's what Bitcoin's all about. It's like, what, we know what happens when you transform photos or music or videos or books to digital form and they move faster. But I don't think anybody was ready for the idea of transforming gold and silver and bonds and stocks and money to digital form because that is just a profound thing that's impacting every company on earth, every person on earth. And it's going faster than any previous digital transformation we've seen. I, I want to jump right on it because I saw this happen live. I pretty much live on Twitter so on December 20th, you tweet, um, if you want to do your shareholders a hundred billion favor, convert Tesla balance sheet from US dollars to Bitcoin. This is a response to a, a meme that uh, um, Elon shared. Uh, and so Elon responds instantaneously, are such large transactions even possible? And you respond, I've purchased 1.3 billion in Bitcoin in the past month. I'm happy to share my playbook with you from one rocket scientist to another. By the way, uh, Michael has a dual degree from MIT and he is a rocket scientist. <laughs> and then uh, uh, just a month or so later, you tweet that on February 3rd and 4th, you're gonna have a Bitcoin corporate conference. And it's a meeting to teach executives the benefits of Bitcoin and 1400 firms show up to your <laughs> conference. An amazing and, you show. Know, lunch and learn session. And then amongst the attendees are a handful of executives from SpaceX and presumably Tesla this is on February 3rd and 4th. Four days later, Tesla buys 1.5 billion in Bitcoin. Can you just explain how, first of all, it's kind of cool when you impact the wealthiest person on earth at that time and convince them to you know, think about a new investment thesis to help the stakeholders and shareholders of Tesla. Well, I mean, if you'd asked any company in February of 2020, do you have a Bitcoin strategy? They would be like, what's Bitcoin? Why do I need it? What's the problem with my traditional treasury strategy? But I think if you look at what happened following that, all the treasury strategies just were broken. If you're buying low yielding bonds, you're getting 0% interest. The money supply is expanding. It expanded 30% last I checked, but certainly 20%. So your purchasing power is falling by 20%. So that breaks people out of their traditional patterns. Uh, so the idea behind Bitcoin, and if you're if you're if you reason from first principles, and Elon Musk does reason from first principles, yep. he created PayPal, you know, and he created a yeah. company nobody thought you could create, and he created a car nobody thought you could create. 
Well, then you look and you say, well, look, I got 20, 30 billion dollars and it's losing 15 to 20 percent of its purchasing power a year. What should I do about that? You know, the answer is uh, pretty clear. Buy an appreciating asset. Uh, MicroStrategy went through the process of considering everything. And we finally decided Bitcoin was the strongest treasury asset that we could find. My message to him, and it would be the same message to anybody, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, is if you have $100 billion worth of cash or $10 billion worth of cash, it's yielding zero, losing 20% of its value a year. It's a liability. Flip it to an asset. The way you yep. flip it to an asset is you convert it into something which is going up 200% a year. And Bitcoin's going up 200% a year for a decade, but it went up 800% last year. And if you understand Bitcoin, you think, well, it's a trillion dollar asset, probably going to 100 trillion. So if I get in now and I convert my cash, which is depreciating into something that's appreciating, you create a very positive cycle for your shareholders. And that's what I conveyed in the tweet. I mean, that's what he was doing. Uh, my only disagreement with him is I told him to buy 10 billion and then you know, <laughs> 5 billion. My, you know, if you look at what happened, if, if, if Tesla or Apple stepped up and bought 10 billion worth of Bitcoin, they would triple it, double or triple it. Yeah. You would, you know, people noted Tesla made more money in six weeks following that decision than they made in the history of making cars. Yeah. It was better than energy yeah. credits. Yeah. And, but, but the real idea is if you're the first, if you're the first country to buy Bitcoin, if you're the first city... What if New York City borrows a billion dollars at 3% interest and buys a billion worth of Bitcoin? It doubles. They've got 2 billion. Then they go back and borrow another billion. It doubles. They've got 4 billion. Then they eliminate taxes, right? Or, wow. or the like. Yeah. Then what does every other city do? They Don't all have that. to follow. And, and what you're doing is you're creating a dynamic. Is, the more aggressive you do this, the more aggressively other people have to follow you then your assets are trading up, then you're generating an investment income and you're lifting with the balance sheet as opposed to the P&L. It's, it's, if you look at the K-shaped recovery, the K-shaped recovery is Wall Street companies, they see their balance sheets expand by 25 to 40% doing nothing. Main Street companies have to work 25% to 40% harder to get nothing. And if your business strategy is asset poor and manufacturing rich, you're fighting against the wind. And if your business strategy is I hold a billion dollars of assets and the money supply expands, you're, you're sailing with the wind. And so that, that's the general thesis there. Michael, there's, there's 40,000 publicly traded companies, but I believe there's only 32 that have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So we're really at the beginning. I mean, this is, and we had ARK Invest on our show and they talked about if 1% of companies yeah. put the balance sheet on Bitcoin, it could be up as much as 40, 50,000 price increase on-, on, on, in, on in February crypto. of 2020, Bitcoin was a consumer thing. It was for crypto traders and consumers. And there were some hodler believers, but, but at that point, the cost of capital felt like more like 7% and conventional treasury strategies you thought would yield 3%. And mm. you might hold your nose and accept a minus 4% <laughs> a year thing because yeah. you know it'll be 20 years before it's really material. That's fine. But when the, when the cost of capital went to 21%, the treasury yield went to 0%, and you got minus 21%, then every institutional investor says, well, maybe I need something like gold, but is, is this better than gold? And that's kind of what they, you know, Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Druckenmiller, Bill Miller, 
you have a thousand companies, a thousand big investors that all discovered digital gold. Companies like mine, when we did our search, we found that there was no public company with any material amount of Bitcoin. Wow. We were the first, but wow. then we were followed by Square. We were followed by Marathon Digital. We were yep. followed by Tesla, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And so it's still early days. I would say that year zero was from March to February 8th when Tesla announced. We're now year one of legitimate institutional adoption. And we should see the next 36 months should be kind of very fast. Amazing. Growth. Yeah, no, we definitely see massive adoption. This, But the interesting question is, what do central banks do? Are they going to buy Bitcoin? Are they going to hold those in reserves like they heard other reserve currencies? Or is this going to be kind of a, a war on the dollar? Because it, it's starting to look like a war on central bank currencies. And will central banks participate? So what do you think? Um, I, I think that the, the right way to think about this is that money has two components. There's a currency component, which is a medium of exchange and a payment network. And then there's an asset component, which is a long-term store of value. And it used to people, people use the dollar as a medium of exchange and they used debt and, and, and ETFs and index funds as store of value. Mm -hmm. And maybe some people use gold. I think that um, if you look out, you're going to see eight, the final culmination of the mobile wave is 8 billion people on the planet with a mobile wallet and one layer is US dollar or euros in your checking account or your payment network and it moves at the speed of light on compliant payment rails. And then the second layer is your savings account and that's like a high quality asset. So what are the high quality currencies? US dollar, euro, yen, yuan. What are the high quality assets? Bitcoin and then fill in your blank and ETF, your Amazon, Apple. Who are the losers? Low quality assets. Probably gold is a loser. Some of the, you know, anti, you know, crappy stocks are a loser. Bonds that are negative yielding. Savings accounts that give you negative interest. Those are losing assets. And, and the currencies, Venezuelan currency, Nigerian currency, Argentine currency, Lebanese currency. The weak currency is being squeezed out. Weak assets getting squeezed out. The world will stampede toward strong assets, strong currency. I think the U.S. dollar is a winner. I don't think it's a loser. I think that this spreads American supremacy to five. You should expect five billion mobile wallets with the U.S. dollar on it. And now how do you get the mobile wallets to synchronize in cyberspace? You need the Bitcoin blockchain because that's the settlement network that lets a mobile app in Africa settle with a mobile app in the U.S., and a mobile app in China once a day on the blockchain. And then you got 18 million applications or 18 million transactions an hour running on the second layer with the currency. Yeah, and you're talking about settlement and trade uh, in, a, in a massive way. I mean, this is, you know, are, are you worried about hacking? Are you worried about people breaking in? Um, you know, because this is one of the big concerns people still have uh, in terms of being copied, hacked, or banned. I mean, you know, some of those, some people I know have had like, you know, their Coinbase accounts hacked and take Bitcoin stripped from them right all, along the way. So, well, I mean, and there's Bitcoin, no central bank protecting you here. Bitcoin's the most uh, secure database, secure network in the world. And, and in the first one, two, three, four years, you couldn't be sure. But after 12 years, uh, it has not been hacked. The, the risk, uh, the cybersecurity risk is at the layer two level with, the, with Bitcoin banks. Yep. Square is a Bitcoin bank. Coinbase is a Bitcoin bank. Mt. Gox was a Bitcoin bank. 
So there'll be 100,000 of these mobile apps and websites sitting on top of the underlying Bitcoin. They all have their own attack surfaces and, you know, they all... They're, they're, they range from simple password on a web browser down to like triple factor authentication hardware wallets. And you'll see all of those things. I think if you're a user of Bitcoin, you have to just very carefully decide what kind of Bitcoin bank do you want to deal with? And look, you could buy Grayscale Trust, GBTC, and you own hmm. some Bitcoin exposure and you don't yep. really have the hacking concern. Right. Or you can go the opposite extreme and you can memorize a 24 phrase seed key in your head and you might get phrase 23 lost a few. <laughs> and then you lose it. So I lost you know, a few, Michael. I have a few on some old Macs. I'm trying to figure out how to crack. I've lost a few Bitcoins. Like they were like $100 when I bought them. Like, I, I tend to think sometimes, you know, you're a bigger risk to yourself than I think you might find that people will fall in love with the idea that like Apple gives you multi-signature with the iPhone, the Apple Watch, hmm. the biometric secure element in the cloud, and they might get comfortable with something like that. You know, yeah. we, we, it yeah. remains to be seen who's going to win the war. I, what you've got is Fidelity competing with Coinbase, competing with Square, competing with Trezor, competing with Ledger, competing with memorize the stuff in your head. And Binance. And, yep. and that's the market. And that's all fair. And it's fine. Yeah. And the market will decide. And by the way, it's not even that there's one right answer, because if you're mass mutual and you want to buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin, you're not putting it on a Trezor or, or whatever. <laughs> no. you, you don't have the ability. So everybody there are flavors of money and everybody's going to take a different approach to put their money into this asset space makes sense um uh, last week uh, i saw jim kramer tweet pay me in bitcoin almost daily i see professional athletes nfl nba pay me in bitcoin uh, you just announced i think a week ago uh, that your board of directors are going to get paid in bitcoin do you think companies are going to adopt with this 401 contribution or a mix of restricted stock options and getting paid in Bitcoin? Will companies, in order to attract talent, offer payments and compensation with uh, cryptocurrencies? Yeah, and, and how was that conversation with your board when you told them? I mean, they must have been all clapping and high-fiving when you said that. Well, the whole idea is Bitcoin is a savings account. It's a bank in cyberspace offering, uh, a, you know, a, a simple, secure savings account. And that savings account has been yielding 200% tax-free interest for a decade. And this year it's doing more. So it's a good way to save money. The board was excited about it. If I, if I have 200,000 in cash and I convert it to Bitcoin, if it goes up 20, 30, 40% a year, I mean, that, if it went up one tenth of what it's been going up, it's still a million times better than my alternative of sitting in a, a bank savings account. Our employees are, are very enthusiastic about this. The next step for us is to roll out uh, Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin on ramps and Bitcoin uh, savings options for all of our employees. I wow. think you're gonna see an explosion of that you know, the big, everyone offering 401k uh, savings plans and employee savings account. It's like the employee stock program for the decade. If I wanted to diversify, yeah, I can put my money into the company stock, but I'm, maybe I would like to put my money into a thermodynamically sound money that's, that's going to be appreciating. It's just a good retirement idea. 
And so it's, it's, a, it's a big opportunity, right? I think you're going to see an explosion in those, uh, in those finance products from insurance companies and fund companies and the like uh, over the next 12 months. I agree. Well, hey, I'm going to take us out a little bit out from the Bitcoin conversation, talk a little bit about what you've been doing at MicroStrategy. There's been a lot of transformation going on there. Uh, let's spend a little bit of time talking about you know, what's happened with your clients, what people are doing, hypercards, intelligence, enterprises, and other areas. Let's jump in there for a second. Okay. Well, uh, you know, there's an acceleration toward uh, complete digital relationships. So we're doing, you know, our tech support uh, online instantly using Zoom. We have uh, digitized all of our services and all of our education, and we've uploaded to our website so people can get the answer in a higher velocity. We have accelerated our development of cloud-based products. So HyperNow is an example of hyper-intelligence delivered in the cloud so that any, you know, someone in Singapore on Saturday afternoon could show up to our website and launch their own pilot and build a hypercard application, plug it into their website and deploy it by Sunday without talking to a human being. Intel now is our next really cool cloud offering where we'll make it possible for someone to build a fully featured business intelligence application in an afternoon without talking to a human being. I think the general theme here, Ray, is just take the friction out of the value proposition. Like nobody wants to meet with you. They don't want to schedule something two weeks in advance. They, uh, they just, they almost don't even want to call you on the phone. It's like, I want to plug this into the Google big query. And so I didn't know how, so I want to see a video for seven minutes. And then I want to click on it and I want it to work. And then I want to deploy it. And then 30 days after I deploy it, then a salesperson may call me and we'll negotiate what discount I get off of, you know, we say it's $10 a month, a user. And the idea is the company shows up, they know they can deploy it, they build it. And then like two months later, they're beating us up to get like 30% off of the $10 a month, a user. But that's like the only engagement they really want when I ask for the discount or the three year license or the something. <laughs> Otherwise they already know it works. And they've already deployed it, right? That that's super fast, you know, and and that's the value proposition people want in the virtual era. Autonomous intelligence, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have Ray and I. We speak to executives on a fairly regular basis, and speed to value—that's how they're measuring quality of partnerships and who they want to go to battle with. So this is amazing. That's fantastic uh, what, what you're doing. And it's uh, every line of business is looking for low friction, speed to value, at, at the speed of need. And unfortunately, they don't get to decide. It's their customers that decide, you know, at, at what speed uh, they're going to choose you as a business partner. So it's great, great innovation. Hey, Michael, really appreciate it. Really appreciate you sharing your insights here. Um, you know, you might love for next best action, MBA. So you're making that possible. Uh, and of course, you know, you're leading the way in terms of thinking in terms of reserve assets, Bitcoin, the future of money, the future of mobile. A lot of what you wrote in your book in the mobile wave in 2012 is now coming true. It's taken 10 years. Think about that. 10 years to get a lot of what you're talking about now into mass adoption. We're here with Michael Saylor, chairman at MicroStrategy, rocket scientist, Bitcoin evangelist, blockchain, cryptocurrency expert, and more importantly, uh, our friend. So thanks for being here. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael underscore Sailor. And I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Keep pushing on Twitter. Keep pushing on social. We need we need uh, disruptors to, you know, help us challenge our, our assumptions. 
our, our next uh, disruptor, innovator, inventor, Sanal Antani, co-founder and CEO of Horizon 3 AI. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, technologist, investor, CEO, co-founder of Horizon 3 AI, a cybersecurity company using AI to deliver red teaming and penetration testing as a service. Uh, he serves as a high quality expert for the U.S. Department of Defense, driving digital transformation data initiative in support of special operations. Prior to his current role, uh, Sanal was CTO SVP at Splunk, held multiple CIO roles at GE Capital and started his career as a software engineer at IBM. He holds 16 patents. I love it, Ray. We got inventors come on our show. It's amazing. You can follow him on Twitter at S-N-E-H-A-L-A-N-T-A-N-I. Welcome, Sanal, to Disrupt TV. No, thank you. I appreciate it, guys. <laughs> so, Snehal, you were sharing an idea with me at CCE in 2019. I think we were on the back of a panel. Vala had just walked by. You're like, Ray, I'm starting this company. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, what's, what's it about? And you're like, look, this this whole cyber market is is getting hot, but they're missing something. Um, and, you know, look, it's true. We've been under cyber threat for so long. But what changed and what caused you to start the company and really talk about this notion of red teaming as a service? Yeah, you know, it's um, it, an interesting challenge. So I've spent time in on all sides of the cyber problem now. So when I was a CIO, I had to secure my environment, defend my environment, report my environment up to the board and to uh, regulators and so on. When I was a CTO at Splunk, I not only had to build help build products in support of security operation centers, but actually have to uh, work closely with our largest customers to help them improve their posture. And then during my uh, tour of duty on the national security side, I got a lot more exposure to nation state level cyber activities. And I'm convinced that we're constantly in reaction mode from a cyber standpoint, which in itself is always more expensive, but the cost to attack is so much cheaper than the cost to defend that we're on this unsustainable trajectory. Thanks to open source exploits and tools, you've got uh, freely available or stolen compute resources. You've got generally you know, proxies or, or highly motivated gangs or cheap labor in foreign countries that are doing attacks at massive scale. Every cyber operation that's being conducted by an illegal entity, they're collecting training data. They're starting to build algorithms to actually do the cyber maneuver. And the trend is that human-based defense is never going to be algorithmic-based attack. And that was kind of my, my first epiphany. And the second is, you know, we've probably, as an industry, spent a trillion dollars in defensive tools over the last five years. Are we really that much more secure? I mean, we're still getting, you know, beaten on a daily basis. And so what I see is this unsustainable trajectory. And it was from that that I formed this thesis of, how do we look at our environment through the eyes of an attacker and use that attacker's point of view to identify our blind spots, identify our ineffective tools and controls and processes, and spend our time fixing problems that actually matter? Uh, and that was kind of, Ray, when I saw you at CCE in 2019, I'd become convinced that that was the right approach to, um, to relooking the cybersecurity market and landscape. And then from there, uh, formed the company, built the team, and we've been executing ever since. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, you know, you visit your company's website, you have thought leadership content. Uh, uh, one of the content spoke to a 2020 survey that found 92% of companies are performing red team exercises, which was up 20% from 2019. 
and uh, 96% are performing purple team exercises, uh, citing the importance of information sharing. So I had to look at another thought leadership piece that you had that actually defined this notion of you have the blue team that's defense, the red team that's attack, and the purple team, it's like a, imagine a Venn diagram intersection where you're unifying the two uh, and, and, and sharing. Can you talk about, and some of our audience may not be familiar with you know, the nomenclature of red team, blue team, purple team. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then the importance of having organizations invest in this capability. And the survey also said uh, you know, less than 8% of the organizations operate their own red teams. They actually choose external firms to do the attack analysis. Uh, can you talk a little bit about these teams and why they're so important? Yeah, let's um let's take a step back a little bit on once again just how broken the environment is today. Uh, if if uh, when I was a CIO, I had a bunch of vulnerability scanning tools I'd run, and I would get a hundred thousand findings from these tools, and of those hundred thousand problems, maybe ten could actually be exploited by attackers, and of those ten, maybe two or three were actually critical where I needed to skip lunch to get those problems fixed. So with traditional vulnerability scanners have been around for, for decades, they're just really noisy and uh, they don't, they're not all that effective. On the pen testing side, I would go pay consultants to show up and attack my environment. And their goal was to embarrass my, my defenders. Yes. Like their goal was to come in, put them down, make them look stupid. And for time and money, in addition to the cultural shock, they could only assess a small chunk of my environment. And so you end up with this incomplete snapshot and a lot of antibodies as a mm. result of this idea of, of trying to own you. Sure. And neither of those are giving you an accurate assessment of where to spend your time. The hardest part of a, of a security team's uh, day is deciding what not to do because they don't have yeah. enough time and resources. Yeah. They can't solve everything. So what am I gonna focus on and where am I gonna accept risk? And the purple team idea, it's not a, it's less a, about a tool and more about a culture. How do you get the blue team or the good guys or the, you know, the defenders to work with the red team or the attackers so that they collaborate to identify the problems you really have to go fix and don't make it adversarial, but make it this idea of continuously assessing your posture, continuously prioritizing your, your security activities so that you can accurately decide what not to work on and you can accurately decide where to actually spend your time. You know, that's a really good point, right? Most people do this like once a quarter, right? And then they go away if they're lucky. And maybe most people do it like once a year. I mean, these threats are happening at a velocity we've never seen before. Um, any advice in, in terms of like how people should approach this or in terms of like an effective strategy? I mean, especially like you can't catch everybody. Yeah, there's, um, there's in, let me build on that. You can't catch everybody. I think the stat now is 80% of attacks today don't need to, or don't use CVEs or standard vulnerabilities that get disclosed, 80%. What attackers have done is adapted. They're able to find valid user IDs and passwords from one location, whether it's a breach from you know, said company or whatnot. They're gonna use valid user IDs and passwords from one place, combine it, with misconfigurations that you have in your product in another place. And it's that combination that's gonna get them domain admin access to your network. And not a single CVE or piece of malware was actually used in that entire attack chain. So very specifically, I will get all of the employee names from Constellation's LinkedIn page. From there, I'm gonna guess your user ID is probably rwang 
at consolation or whatnot. Shit, don't tell anybody. Fifty-one <laughs> percent of people reuse their personal password for their corporate password. Damn, and you know it's password. How did you know it was password and admin? Right, you know, solar ones one two three. But the point is, uh, attackers with have a capital adapted. P. With a capital P. With a capital P. With, with a capital P. Uh, you know, the attacker has adapted. So, so one part is, you know, we are we are defending yesterday's attacks. The second issue is, building your question, you know, you want to find those attack paths before the bad guys can exploit it. And if you're worried about monitoring and alerting, you're already playing reaction. So how do we get into this security by design mindset and philosophy? So you're finding those bad attack, those attack paths before the bad guys do. And that's a, a major cultural shift. And now I'll talk about my lessons learned and trying to do this on the, on the CIO role, but you know, what do you guys think? Is that aligning with what you're hearing? Yeah, it is. And, it, and when, when you, see, when you hear stats in terms of, how CIOs are still spending 80, 85% of the time keeping the lights on, not giving them the opportunity to innovate and invest, invest in emerging technologies like maybe AI or, or additive manufacturing or immersive technologies. We had a AR, VR hologram expert last week on our show. And yeah, most of the CIOs that I collaborate with, their, their security uh, projects still dominate vast majority of the, the hours that they spend in the day. And so operational excellence and security is, 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 is uh, becoming more complex. The threat vectors are becoming more complex. And so it's, it, it's a challenge for them to innovate because they're constantly under pressure. Unless they have an opportunity to partner with folks like yourself or your company, they're gonna still spend 90% of the time trying to keep the lights on because it's, it's really job security. I mean, security is a, is a board level discussion. <laughs> you, you know, we, we've seen in the past senior executives uh, part ways due to security vulnerabilities. So it's it's top of mind for every CIO, every CXO that I speak with. Yeah. I'm going to jump in and say, um, you know, this is definitely a hot issue. And but the problem is we keep throwing bodies at this. And and that's the that's the problem. Mm -hmm. and, and I kind of want you to describe who is node zero? Like, who, who is this persona, this AI that's doing all this work, right? Because you're like, no pro serve. No, it's all software. Don't even worry about it. I mean, describe node zero. Like, what is it doing? Yeah. So so I'll give you an analogy for a moment. So Think about when IBM played Gary Kasparov in chess yeah, a bunch of years yeah. ago, right? Yeah. IBM didn't hard code 40 million chess games in that competition and determine that, oh, Gary must be playing game number 3,204. That's the game we're gonna play. What IBM did was every time a, a piece was moved on the board, they evaluated every piece and they, de they determined the next best action to, uh, to execute. And if you take that philosophy, adaptive algorithmic offensive cyber applies this next best action concept. So, you know, if you think about how an attacker behaves today, whether it's a, a piece of ransomware, or whatever else, step one is to recon and enumerate the environment. Mm -hmm. What do I have around me as an attacker gains access? What are all the IPs on my network? What are the services that are running? Are there any credentials I can find or collect through different techniques and so on and so forth? What, as you do reconnaissance and enumeration, what you're really building is a map of the environment. Think of it as like a cyber terrain map. From that cyber terrain map, now what you're going to do is plan your maneuvers. So I'm going to go to the printer first. From the printer, I can jump over to the domain controller. From the domain controller, I can jump over to the mainframe or whatever that path might be. Sure. And you know, 
that was done by humans on the attack side for a number of years. But if you look at the last few years, that is almost completely algorithmic on the na- on, on the bad guy, like on the attacker side. And so being able to take nation state, exquisite high-end offensive security expertise that is algorithmic in nature, we took that as the foundation. And what we've built is algorithmic attack. The whole idea is with no humans, complete self-service, come in, conduct reconnaissance, do the enumeration, build out a cyber terrain map, figure out all of the different ways to steal your data. And then what's cool is show you of all the different pads or kill chains we could have stolen your data. If you fix this one problem right here, you can shut down two out of three of those those pads and maximize your return on effort. And, you know, the adaptive nature is you can't hard code every possible attack. You've got to dynamically maneuver just like IBM did with, with Kasparov and Chess. So the real, like the AI in Horizon 3 AI is this idea of adaptive maneuver throughout an entire environment at scale. You know, where are you recruiting talent? Are you, I mean, uh, you know, is machine learning, I mean, deep learning, what are some of the prerequisite skills that maybe uh, complementing the pure security domain expertise that you think about as complexity continues to rise? Yeah, you know, um, this is a formula I've used from my time at GE to my time in the government to my time in, in startup now. You need three legs to the stool to be effective. You need a deep subject matter expert. So think of using AI and machine learning in, in revenue and finance, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just take a bunch of mathematicians from U Chicago, throw them right. in a room and magically see a billion dollars get generated at GE Capital. Yeah. It didn't work that way. You needed to take um, machine learning experts, sit them side by side with the domain expert themselves. Mm-hmm. In this case, it might be a, a finance expert or whomever. And you've got a, a software engineer that knows how to actually build robust production grade software because data scientists usually write pretty crappy code. But you need all three legs of that stool to be effective. Uh, so we've applied the same approach. We have a third of the company are recently retired military national security level hackers from the unit from the US, like cyber oh. operators from the US. Sure. So a very deep subject matter expert in offensive skills and attacks. They're, you know, with lots of operational experience and tempo. Another third of the company on the engineering side are machine learning data science type experts that know how to build out knowledge graphs to, to represent your cyber train, do the path yeah. analysis. And the final third are platform engineers that know how to build enterprise grade software as a service offerings. And it's the, the combination of those skills that the really exquisite high-end offensive cyber expertise, plus the machine learning data science expertise, plus the platform engineering expertise, that is really the core DNA of the company. This is not easy to do. No, it's not. (laughs) Don't try this at home, kids. (laughs) And I'll tell you, we're we're one of the few non is yeah, we're one of the few non-Israeli companies doing this. Wow. <laughs> that's another crazy part you know that is another um, crazy part because no one came from you know any one of those special institutes so wow. yep that's exactly it um the fun part too on the startup side is when you've got a culture of you know a third of the people coming from the national security world and then two-thirds of engineering that have come from the the enterprise software startup world those are very different cultures that you're starting to bring together like how do you have a a former green beret uh, sitting next to an engineer in skinny jeans, and how do you get them to like have a common point of view of the world? It's it's super hard, and that's been really fun for us to 
to figure out the right cultural fit. That is awesome. Yeah, I can totally see the makeup <laughs> of the room. And uh, and yeah, yeah, from skinny jeans, yeah, hipsters and the and the, <laughs> and the green berets. Yeah, That's we fun. say um, uh, cool pants. So K U H L, like cool pants. Those tend to be the mountaineering pants that that uh, that military folks wear. It's you know from cool pants to skinny jeans. And and how do you blend that that the, those different cultures together? So That's so amazing. that that being the case, do companies need these big cyber command centers anymore? Like, I mean, can they can they reduce it and get it down to like you know something that's more manageable, or is is that still something that's required? So I I think this this idea of human based whether it's human based pen testing, human based security operation centers, human based forensics, the human in that equation is becoming the bottleneck, and wow. you know we. When, especially when you look on the attack side, it is humans by exception on the attack side now at the nation state, you know, criminal organization standpoint where the bulk of the attack has been automated. And only if the automation gets stuck, does a human have to actually get on the net to issue commands to unstick it. I mean, that's how these criminal organizations are able to attack so many organizations at scale. So on the defensive side, we've got it right now. We're human in the loop. We have to get to human on the loop where it's humans providing supervisory notions, but we have to design security centers going forward with humans out of the loop, humans by exception type type processes and tools and so on. Otherwise, this unsustainable trajectory is only going to get worse. You know, I learned something from you in 2019 and it's in my book and somehow I, I, I probably i'll give you credit now but it was that notion of decision velocity you said something to me and it, it really stuck with me and, and i can't, i remembered it probably in the wrong way but humans make a decision per second but machines make a th decisions a thousand times per second and or something like that to that effect and and I've, I've kind of used that because i mean that's what we're competing on right now and especially in cybersecurity. and so it's something that, that hasn't left me so it was very very valuable insight from you yeah it's you know, a theme it's a theme from michael the first segment where he talked about removing friction I think again, it's it's it, I, I I I I I think that improving decision velocity by understanding points of friction where maybe human in the center of the process, and and minimizing that is makes 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 a lot of sense to me. I mean, if you think about it, attackers know more about your environment than you do. Yes. That just accept that fact. Now the question is how they didn't have professional services that you paid for. They didn't install a bunch of tools like you were normally done in the drish, yet they still know more about your environment than you do. And they're able to uh, discover, evade, attack, and succeed uh, consistently without a whole lot of pushback across the board. And they're not doing it with humans. They're doing it with algorithms. That's how they're able, they're able to do it at scale. That's how you evade at scale and, and so on. Uh, but yeah, right to your point on the maneuver decisions, I'll, I'll give you two examples uh, or one primary example. If an algorithm can make a thousand decisions per second for should I go to the printer, the router, or the connected television next in my lateral movement? A human defender maybe is gonna make one decision in a minute, forget about a second. And you talk about getting into the OODA loop in the old fighter jet days, you know, yeah. algorithmic attack, you're already inside the defender's OODA loop. And you know, yeah. as you get to a thousand decisions per second, 10,000 decisions per second, humans have no chance. And, and yeah, I'm not I'm not discounting the value of humans in the role. I'm simply saying attackers have adapted to the point that 
uh, humans are now the inefficiency on the defensive side. Oh my God. That is something we should know. Sneha Antani, co-founder and CEO of Horizon 3 AI, BT150 alumni. And more importantly, you can follow him on Twitter at Sneha Antani, A-N-T-A-N-I. Thank you so much, man, for being on the show. I'll catch up with you later this weekend. So, All right. See you guys. Thank Thank you. you Hey, thank you. Ray, you think about, yeah, observe, orient, decide, act per second. Yeah, he's right. We we do it in minutes. And we're competing against algorithms that are doing it thousands a second. All right. my mind is just expanded so much, and now it's going to be even more so. Our, our last guest, uh, uh, this is a cleanup hitter grand slam slot, uh, is uh, Cecilia Flores, founder and chief operating officer of Weeby. Cecilia is a tech entrepreneur passionate about the social impact of disruptive technologies and innovation. In 2013, she co-founded Weeby, a hardware and software Internet of Things and artificial intelligence company based in Silicon Valley. Weeby provides a no-code end-to-end IoT toolset provided by powered by AI and computer vision that allows simple connectivity through sensors and devices, intuitive data processing, and instant remote monitoring of operations. Last year in July, uh, Cecilia was announced as the winner of the Female Founders Competition, a major global competition as Best U.S. Enterprise SaaS. Uh, this $6 million competition was organized by M12, Melinda, Melinda Gates, Pivotal Ventures, and Mayfield Fund. Same year, 2020, uh, Cecilia was also recognized as one of the global uh, uh, awards in Game Changers category in the U.S. and Canada and awarded Entrepreneurial Force winner in La Voz del Interior, an award that recognizes leaders of uh, uh, Cordoba, Argentina business ecosystem. You can follow Cecilia on Twitter at ANCEF. Welcome, Cecilia, to Disrupt Thank TV. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, we're excited to have you. I mean, you're covering some great topics, anything from smart farms to smart factories. It comes back to digital transformation, you know, and this has been one of the biggest challenges everywhere around digital transformation, but you guys have identified some of those challenges and figured out some solutions. Let's start there by talking about what's been the hardest part uh, for customers that are looking at digital transformation. Yeah, so this is something that we see very often in the different enterprises that we work with uh, and specifically in the food industry. Digital transformation is often taken as a broad approach throughout the organization to really define what is coming next and what is going to be the architecture in terms of technology and how it's going to define the future for the organization. And there's a big gap between that reasoning and that planning and what's actually going on in the front line and what are the processes that are being affected because of the lack of visibility or not being able to access information in real time. So what in our approach to digital transformation is really a different one, which goes in line with what I, I just heard in the, on the other conversation, which is really reducing the friction for the users and providing tools that they can use right away and adding efficiency out of the box. What, in, what I mean by that is just not waiting for to have the perfect solution or architecture, but just having an easy tool set that they can access real-time information without having to spend months in implementations and invest millions of dollars in software or that generate information that no one can really act upon. So, you know, our approach to that is really what we call like much more bottoms up. How can we get, uh, can add value in the front line? How can we reduce the cultural friction on adopting new technology and just provide that information right away? So digital transformation happens much more organically within the organization. Just when you have a production line, 
you uh, automate a certain process very easily. You show return on investment right away, and you do it in a way that is friendly for in the, in the factory line, the maintenance manager, the supervisor, everyone that is involved in that process, then organically they want to add more you know, technology on top of that. So that's that's been our approach, and, and it's, it's proving to be very successful in a sense that organizations embrace technology, they understand why uh, it's important to act upon data, and, and they continue to grow from there and reduce inefficiencies, of course. That's the end goal. Makes a lot of sense. I, I'm, I'm amazed that eight years ago you decided to start a company focused on IoT and AI. That's truly trailblazing work. Um, and, you know, none of us could anticipate what we've experienced since, uh, you know, uh, last year with the pandemic. We've had uh, futurists on our show that, that tell us that perhaps we've um, witnessed a decade of acceleration uh, in terms of culture. You know, for example, millions of people being able to work remotely from home. Uh, and companies accepting that and embracing and even championing potential future models that embrace uh, working remotely to e-commerce adoption to, I think, grocery adoption has seen 10 years acceleration. So when we think about this decentralized digital world that we all were forced into uh, starting, I suppose, in the U.S. was March of last year, how has the pandemic affected IIoT initiatives. Have you seen multiple years of acceleration in terms of companies recognizing the importance of combining AI and IoT to create, you know, new capabilities and perhaps even new business models? Absolutely. So there's, you know, it always depends on the industry that you focus on. There are some industries that are more accelerated to others, but we are focused on the agriculture and food industry, and in, specifically in this sector. Before the pandemic, it was kind of hard to get them to understand why, why you need technology. So a lot of very critical processes are handled visually or with manual control, and there's tons of inefficiencies there. And before the pandemic, it was, you know, there was some interest, you know, knowing how it was kind of trendy also there in, in uh, industrial IoT and how to move forward. There were a lot of inefficiencies also in creating solutions and proof of concept that could really take off within the organization. But after the pandemic, we saw it was night and day. It's like, okay, now companies are starting realizing that they need this, that this was one of the ways that they could overcome the pandemic without discontinuing the food, uh, the food uh, system and specifically the food production in each of the, of the different steps of the supply chain and also uh, do remote work and remote control of some operations when they couldn't be in there in the factory line because of all the, the restrictions. So we see the acceleration. There's still a lot to do in terms of understanding that IoT is not just connecting sensors and extracting data. It's, it's much more than that. It's just aggregating data from different sources and adding artificial intelligence so you can start um, getting real time insights and real get the, mas the machines and the processes to make decisions on your, on your behalf, which is the real beauty of IoT. So there's still a long way to go, but at least we see that the big shift has been understanding that this is something that they should embrace and all of the organizations know that they have to start with IoT and this is actually the way to go in the future. 
And Cecilia, but I mean, they're, they're starting with, they're starting to realize with IoT, you can quantify things you couldn't do before, right? You're getting grain yields, you're getting crop conditions that you couldn't soil conditions. Like if you're trying to do sustainable cage-free farming with chickens and livestock, I mean, they're, they're variables that haven't been discovered before. Um, are there any kind of insights you can kind of share where people are like, oh, I never knew this was happening, that suddenly that you're quantifying oh, something that people haven't done before? So. so many. And the beauty of the food industry is that they, these are all products that we consume every day. And we don't we don't imagine how many processes are involved in getting your food in, you know, in, in your shell, in the shelf and getting fruit, you know, fresh to you and all that. So, you know, one of the, the reasons why we decided to focus on the food industry is because it's one of the industries that has a lot of manual control still, and there's a huge impact of food losses in the, on the environment. You know, one third of all the food produced in the world goes to waste. waste yeah. And then 40% of that amount is due to inefficiencies during production or agriculture uh, activities. Wow. So we, we, we firmly believe on creating technology. And this is one of the reasons why I decided to found the company in, at the beginning was the power of technology to fix global issues. Not just the, the technology per se, it's just what can you do with it? You know, how can you do the world a better, a better world? And then that's what, why we decided to create this non-code toolset and focus on the food industry. So some of the things that happen and go all the way from having a farmer check visually, and this is a real case, of uh, a melon plantation. You know, you have a visual control every day to make sure that everything is going, you know, smoothly and there's no uh, disruptions in the production. Uh, and then, you know, the person fails for some reason, they cannot be doing visual control that day. And then within 24 hours, they lost $2 million in melons. This is wow. the US. So 24 hours, no no visual control, something that can be super easily fixed with a product that, you know, averages $100,000 a year of, you know, license, let's say. So, and this is this is something that happens super often. Also in manufacture, in manufacturers and in factories, you one would think that, okay, this product that I consume is a fully automated factory. They have all this sophisticated software. They have a sophisticated software, they don't get the alerts. So they have the data, they cannot discriminate what information they are seeing and they cannot act on time and they cannot predict when something is going to happen. So which, yeah. which, which is basic IoT or AI, right? Just being able to understand and discriminate data, process data and have a real time alert. So we have another use case for a chocolate manufacturer that they have a boiler they have, that is super sensitive to temperature. They have a system that is running alerts system generates so many alerts that they cannot discriminate one day that the the boiler you know has a a, a change on temperature and that you cannot alert it on time it destroys the whole production so they have to toss away all the chocolate in the factory line this is two hundred and sixty thousand dollars per hour of downtime alone so we're talking about massive losses and then the amount of chocolate that you have to toss away and then restart the production line. So all these kind of use cases, we see it all the time. Then talk about livestock, you know, um, there's a very interesting case also with pig uh, swine production. So the mother lies on top of a piglet and the piglet dies of asphyxia. So uh, this is something that is also super frequent. 17% uh, of, uh, of the production is lost, but you know, during the maternity process of, of uh, pig production. So this is something that computer vision can fix. You have you know, two yeah. bodies one on top of the other, you send an alert and then the people can go and take care of it. So it, it's still, you know, being visually controlled, visually managed. And it, it's not because 
the production is not sophisticated, it's super automated, and all of the other processes are automated, but there's still much more to do with the technology available. And the beauty is that sensors and controllers and all the hardware that you need to get those controls and also the cloud infrastructure now have an affordable price to make it work. Before it was difficult because you know you know you end up adding a lot of cost into the production and it's hard to balance both. Uh, but now everything is ready just to you know kind of apply technology, do it in a simple way that they can kind of you know iterate the project super fast and get the product result and prove the return on investment. Wow. It hurts my heart when you said hundreds of thousands of chocolate were thrown away. That, that, that breaks my heart. <laughs> Food manufacturers are very concerned about food safety. So anything yeah, sure. that is disrupted on the production line, they have to toss it away. It's, it's not just, you know, a matter yeah, of- Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, it, you, you see videos from World Economic Forum consistently reminding us that a third of all food is thrown away. Uh, you know, we're going to have 10 billion mouths to feed in the next couple of decades, 50 mega cities, metropolitans with 10 million or more population. So, you know, to be able to develop a supply chain and delivery of fresh food to, what, two and a half billion more people in the near term, you, you just can't sustain throwing away a third of your food. So uh, I, I imagine these environments are dynamic. And so do you find your company is actively involved in proof of concepts to design the optimal sense and response systems? For your, for your clients as you're implementing AI and IoT technology? Yeah, so we proved that that is the best way to show them why they should embrace, mm -hmm. embrace technology because the proof of concepts uh, really show them in a very specific period of time how they are proving their return on investment on the technology they are trying to, to evolve, so the, uh, to implement. So the food industry is a very, you know, they have very low margins. So when you're going to implement innovation, it has to be proven that it's adding value to the overall process. Sure. So uh, being able to kind of commit to a POC and having a tool set like ours, which is non-code, you, you don't have to put engineers to program a sensor or you know, workflows or normalize data from different data sources. You can do that right away and you can do it yourself. So our idea is to give them the power to play around with the canvas, you know, drag and drop in, creating the workflows until they see the information they need to see, until they have the dashboard that they feel comfortable with, also, different type of information from different layers within the organization, because you know the plan manager probably wants to see an overall view, but the maintenance manager just needs to see a very specific portion of it. And then there's a supervisor, line supervisor that just needs to get an alert. You know, so all that kind of different types of information, they can customize it themselves within the platform. And getting the POC is really the way to show them this is how you prove return on investment. This is how you scale digital transformation within their organization. It's not another layer of cost within the organization, it's yeah. just a revenue generator for you. This is adding efficiency. So we see proof of concept really as a way for them to start embracing it and understanding what does it really means. Yeah, it makes a lot of right. sense. I mean, look at that, Ray, that our three guests, I think have emphasized that the, the, the new currencies, and I'm not saying currency because our first case talked about Bitcoin, New currencies in terms of what matters to business is speed, speed. it's personalization, it's it's intelligence. Uh, you know, it's signal to noise, improving signal to noise ratio and, 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 and adding speed, value. Yeah, and speed goes hand in hand with reducing friction, which is something that also came, you know, yeah. in the other conversation, which is IoT is so complicated. You know, if you have to ask a farmer to sit down and understand communication protocols, sensors, databases, not 
I mean, it's not their business. They just produce right, right. You know, food. That's it. That, that's right. their business. So with using right. fiction and giving them the power, it's critical for them to embrace technology. You know, time, time series data sucks. We'll just start there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, especially when yeah, you're capturing yeah, remote yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, and, and you have to sync. Yeah. But, uh, but 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 hey, let's let's talk more about startups and where we're going. Um, so, where are you funding wise? Um, are you seed? Are you Series A? I mean, M12's got you somewhere. I'm assuming. Yeah, we're seed. Uh, we are opening our Series A soon. So, <laughs> Series A. No, no, yeah. this is very important. Um, yeah. This is unannounced. This is a special surprise to everybody and for Snehal as well, who's probably still listening. Um, so, so sometime in September, we're going to create a new project called The Pitch, and it's American Idol meets TechCrunch Enterprise Battlefield Disrupt meets C CNBC Shark Tank. We're going to get 50 to 100 CIOs in different spaces and match them up with um, entrepreneurs like yourself, typically Series A, 5 million ARR or below is kind of the idea. And what we're going to try to do is match them together. And then you're going to make a pitch for 15 minutes. And then there'll be public voting and the Constellation Academy of Judges that are going to jump in. And then the winners are going to get into a closed room session in six categories. So if you meet those criteria, let me know. I think Snehal might as well. Um, but the idea is to bring the enterprise tech, keep it sexy. That's kind of what we're about. And then, of course, uh, bring everyone together. So, so you'll see like, you know, banks, corporate venture funds and uh, consulting mm -hmm. firms that want to get to know who's who's hot and what's going on. So, so do you qualify? <laughs> Just kidding. I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 That's so, but what's it like? What's startup scene in, in the Valley like today, especially with post pandemic? No one's hanging out the Rosewood. No one's going to meetups. Like what, what, what's <laughs> happening? How does this change? Yeah, I got to say that we feel like we lost a little bit of the, the beauty of Silicon Valley, which is connecting with others and making things happen and really getting hand in hand with, you know, advisors and mentors and, and other companies also, you know, working in the same field. We, we do miss that, you know, like the trade yeah. show activities that get us together, which is the beauty of this ecosystem. Um, but still, we also see kind of a more collaborative way for, you know, companies with purpose, you know, I would say, call it somehow. You know, just we have a very strong uh, sense of uh, purpose around sustainability. It's not just creating IoT because it's, you know, there's so many other solutions out there. For us, it's, you know, it's technology with a purpose. And then, you know, COVID really helped us connect with other companies around the world that are, you know, kind of trying to fix the same problem. And I think in some way, um, organizations are more open to the virtual world, which was something difficult before. So it's kind of the good and the bad, <laughs> but we still miss the face-to-face you know, mostly we would love to spend more time in our client sites and be there because that's where you really learn, you know, what's going on with the product and how the, the, the experience look like. And, and that's something important for a company in our stage, you know, just being there with them is super important. So we, we do it anyway, but, uh, but that's something we missed from the yeah, pre-COVID times. <laughs> Hopefully it's around the corner. We'll get back to some normalcy, you know. Uh, so we're all looking forward to meeting in person, for sure. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Um, we're here with Cecilia Flores, um, founder of Weeby. Uh, more importantly, uh, more, more importantly, looking at transforming I IoT, smart farming, smart manufacturing, and even worker safety. You can follow her on Twitter at ANCEF. Thank you so much for being on the show and hopefully see you around here in the Valley. Thank you. Thank you.
<laughs> we are speechless. We are speechless. Well, you know, I mean, the, the spectrum of knowledge uh, and learnings for you and I, you know, the world of cryptocurrency that's, you know, a, a, a wave of goodness and, and, and uncertainty and beauty uh, to the hardcore world of cybersecurity, which is just incredibly complex and getting even more so. And then the world of IoT and AI and, and you know, how we can, you know, serve humanity better because frankly, throwing away a third of the food that we produce just is That's insane. insane. Um, that is just insane. With so many millions of food insecure homes just in the US and we're the, you know, richest, biggest GDP in the world. And there's millions of homes that are food insecure. Imagine other countries uh, and what they're going through and yet we're throwing away a third of the food. So, so. You know, I'm rooting for Weeby and companies that are really tackling, bringing efficiency and 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 greater yield to 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 this space because I think it's just it's just we got to do better. We've got to. Anyway, what a, what a show! That was episode two thirty two. We have conducted seven hundred and twelve interviews in five years, <laughs> so we're inching our way to seven fifty and the eight hundred milestone by the end of this year. Episode two thirty three is next week. We have Chuck Ganapathy, CEO of Tact AI. We have Alan Bomi, Chief Technology Officer at H&M Group, massive company doing massive digital transformation. And Catherine Wong, Chief Product Officer and Executive Vice President of Engineering at Domo. So uh, yeah, uh, Ray, your thoughts on Michael Saylor and our other guests, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned Michael and his company, they own 91,576 Bitcoin. That's uh, almost $6 billion of Bitcoin. Uh, so uh, pretty amazing that almost 95, 96% of the corporate balance sheet is on crypto. It is amazing. Um, but hey, look, we're running out of time. We're going to catch up with everyone next Friday. And so, you know, as everybody knows, you know, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Join us 11 a.m. Pacific, um, 2 p.m. Eastern, almost every Friday for the live broadcast and catch our replays and follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Thank you, everybody. Bye, everyone.